You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Thursday, October 2nd, 2014, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, folks. So tonight... This is a special episode of the SGU. Even though we're recording it early in October, this episode is going up on December 6th while we are still uh, down under. I think we'll be in New Zealand when this thing goes up. And uh, this is a special episode that we're recording. We have invited 18 listeners of the SGU to come on a GoToMeeting meeting with us. And they are going to all ask us live questions and actually get to discuss our answers with us. But first, Rebecca, we're going to start with a This Day in Skepticism for December 6th. Yeah, I wish that I had a happier one for this episode where we have listeners joining in, but we're recording on December 6th, so I pretty much have to mention that this is the National Day of Remembrance and Action on Violence Against Women Day. I said day twice. Uh, you get the idea. Uh, and that's because... This marks the day in 1989 that uh, Mark Lapine murdered 14 women and injured 10 more, as well as four men, during a 20-minute-long massacre known as the Echo Polytechnique Massacre, specifically because, in his own words, he was attempting to end feminism, and he... Uh, specifically comp complain about women encroaching on men's territory. And so he chose as his targets women in the, uh, you know, were in a majority male industry. You know, they were going to school to become engineers. The majority of them they? were engineering students. Yeah. I think at least one was uh, a worker at the university. But for the most part, yeah, they were all engineers. And yeah, it was a really horrific massacre that led to significant changes in gun control laws in Canada and also really highlighted the problem of violence against women by men uh, and specifically this backlash against feminism and against women achieving equality in the workplace. So December 6th is a date that I know many of my friends who are women in science and women in science communication, they uh, mark this date as a very important one to remember and to honor. Why did he kill some guys too? Like They got in the way. There, there were a number of people afterwards who criticized many of the men uh, who were involved that day because, uh, for instance, uh, he started the massacre, uh, Lapine started the massacre by going into a classroom and telling all of the men to stand on one side of the room and the women on the other. And then he made the men leave. And then he gunned down the women. And the men were criticized by some for not, you know, rushing to the aid of the women. And I, I find it a particularly ironic and horrible thing to subject these men to. Uh, it's like this chivalrous sort of idea that modern feminists would say is absurd. Like these men, uh, were not under any, 
you know, I mean, that's a horrible situation. You can't expect an average person to risk life and limb, you know, at, at the drop of a hat for someone else just because they happen to be women. So it, it, it was, it was a pretty, pretty horrendous aftermath in, in that respect as well. You don't know how you're going to react at the end of a gun barrel. I mean, give me a break. Nobody should be put in that position and nobody knows how they're going to react in that position. So you're right. You're absolutely right. Nobody should be held to account for their reaction for that. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, the um mm-hmm. the massacre actually didn't end until uh Lapine killed himself. Luckily, he did it before he ran out of ammo killed because himself. he had quite a bit more, but he still made a significant impact in just 20 minutes. Yeah, it's horrible. And it's just amazing, you know, whatever. Obviously, we can't get inside the mind of somebody who would do such a thing. I mean, you know, it's just, I can't even imagine you know, where, where somebody needs to be mentally that they feel, I know what I'll do. I'll get all the ammunition I can and kill as many people as I can. Yeah. The notion of protesting feminism by killing women, like, is he missing the irony there? I mean, did he? Yeah. I know. You know, did he? Obviously well, he was, but I mean. It's like the adage of every article on the internet about feminism, the comments on it only makes it obvious that feminism is needed. <laughs> Uh, same sort of yeah. deal. Like this is, yeah, this is why we need to keep fighting for equality in the workplace because these women literally lost their lives by simply pursuing a career that was traditionally mm-hmm. one that was dominated by men. Yeah, but it needs to be point pointed out though that that's just one crazy ass douchebag. You know what I mean? That that's not representative of. He unfortunately has become representative and continues to be so. You know, we see people like Elliot Roger following in his footsteps even last year. And, you know, he came from a family where his own father was completely had this huge hatred of women and instilled that in his son and uh, abused his uh, mother. You know, so... He comes from this uh, background where hating women was an integral part of his life. And so that really can't be ignored. You know, the fact that he specifically was part of this, unfortunately, this community, this movement of people who do believe that women don't deserve equality and that they uh, shouldn't have it. I mean, this didn't happen in a vacuum. Yeah, I mean, but I think... Jay's point also could be it is certainly this kind of thing is not institutionalized the way it was before equal rights, but still there are individuals and and subcultures and groups of people who still have these sentiments are willing to act on them, feel they need to act on them. Uh, so, yeah, I think, you know, certainly it's better than it was 50 years ago, but events like this remind us that we're not there yet. I mean, there's still a lot of people who feel like it's even a question. And I do think the younger generation, it's going to get better every generation. Like I have a, you know, two young daughters and, and my older daughter, Julia, she's like, how could anybody not be a feminist? She's just, Wait she learns it. history. Like, yeah. You know, of course men and women are equal. How could, how could well, anybody think anything else? Just the idea is completely yeah. alien to her, which is good. It should be, but it should be completely alien to her. I mean, she obviously knows that people think that. She knows it's part of history and culture, but just the idea is so against her just basic worldview that she can't wrap her head around it. And I guess that's a good thing. That's a testament to the, your up, her upbringing, you know, your influence on her, Steve, and, and Jocelyn's influence on her. I mean, she's seeing a very equal house, and that's not the case everywhere either. 
You know, my point before though to Rebecca was that, you know, this one guy with a gun that goes ape shit to me doesn't have any impact on who I am and what I believe. And I think, you know, most of the people that I know, you know, that guy is just a crazy son of a bitch who is acting on, you know, his own thoughts. I don't think that by anywhere, any, you know, interpretation of reality that that's the norm. Well, I mean, it's not the norm in that this doesn't happen every day, but it does happen every year or so. But it's not uncommon. So, it's not the norm, but it's not uncommon. And again, I think that we're seeing, we are absolutely seeing a, a version of this on the internet where people are responding to, you know, women trying to have an equal voice, you know, in the skeptical movement by threatening them, literally attempting to harass them out, off the internet and in some cases succeeding. So it's not physical violence, but they're using emotional violence against women just for being there, just for being women. It's, you know, it's ridiculous. And threats of, of threats of physical yeah, violence. Yeah, threats of violence. That sometimes yeah, they follow I, through yeah. with, like Elliot Roger, like others. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to the Q&A, which is going to be the rest of the show, basically. We have a number of listeners on the line. We're just going to go down the line. Our first listener is David Young. Okay, so my name is uh, David Young, and I'm actually in Hong Kong. I have been listening to the SGU since uh, November of 2007, mm -hmm. and I became a skeptic from listening to your show. Uh, I became interested in science from listening to your show. I, I had a conversation at that time. Uh, I can't remember if it was avian flu or swine flu was a significant issue here in Hong Kong. And I remember speaking to someone about it at the time, and they said to me, they said, it's not viral, it's bacterial. And I remember thinking, I don't know what the difference is, and I don't know what that means, you know, in terms of being able to yeah. treat it. Mm -hmm. and, and I had this moment where I realized I'm ignorant about science. And coinciding with that event, my, uh, my boys gave me an iPod for Christmas, and I went looking for science content to fill that iPod, and I found you guys, and it just like this... This is how I want to think. I want to learn more about this. And even still, I'm not really good at science, but I'm really good at thinking about science from listening to your show. That's awesome. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That is awesome. Awesome. More so, people. We need more people like that. So anyway, did you have a, a question? I'm more of an activist than a scientist. That's what I always say. So my question for you guys is, how are you communicating to the unconverted? Uh, to someone who only knows your activities through listening to the podcast, uh, it seems that most of the public appearances that you talk about or mention are you speaking to fans of existing skepticism. So uh, what I'd like to know is how are you how are you getting out there to people who aren't already in the camp, and um, how can we as the average listener or as the average skeptical activist help you do that? You know, social media is, uh, as much as it can be a complete and total pain in the ass, it's a really good way of reaching people that, don't know who we are, but might have some type of interest in science or things like on Facebook can spread very easily. So somebody finds an article on our, on our Facebook page that they like and they, they link it and, you know, their relatives or their, you know, family members, other friends of theirs who aren't skeptics, who, who aren't science minded will see that. Of course, everybody knows how this works. So that, that over the past year, since we, we really started to ramp up our Facebook page, you know, we have, we have a, you know, a lot of likes on there and a lot of the people that are on our page are, are definitely not skeptics. They're just, you know, involved in the conversations that get started by all the posting that we do. We have more likes than we have weekly listeners to the show. Oh, wow. 
Yeah, as, as of as of our recording, we're approaching four hundred thousand likes. But yeah, that's going well. So we also, you know, we we are you know, getting on YouTube is about outreach, trying to get to people who don't know the show yet. Doing as many interviews as we possibly can on other podcasts or for the media at large. Our blogs, you know, where we write about a specific topic, and then most of the people who read that will were searching for that topic, not necessarily for skeptics or for us. Uh, and that gets them into all of our media, at least potentially. And if you got any other ideas, let us know. But we're trying to use traditional media, social media, getting in the press, you know, by getting interviewed for articles, et cetera, to reach beyond our loyal listeners. I think science-based medicine does that as well, Steve. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Here's one of the things that I do, all the rogues actually, but Steve specifically, here's one of the things I do here in Hong Kong. If I read a newspaper article where they're talking about um, anything that you address on your science-based medicine website, I go in there in the comments, and I, if I can, if I'm allowed to post a link, I post a link to your, to your blog. That's um, awesome. I'll send an email directly. I'll send an email directly to the journalist and say, if you want the other side of this story, and then sometimes I put in brackets, the truth, talk to this guy, and I tell him to go see you. And, I mean, is that a pain in the ass, or is that what you want people doing? No, I think that's great. Linking back to us from any time you can is great. That's That's just good networking. And also, we encourage all of our listeners to try to find one or two people in their lives and work on them and get them to listen to the show. Obviously, most people may know somebody who would already be amenable to the show or already scientific or skeptically minded and would like to listen to the show. Absolutely make sure they know about us. But there also may be some people who are kind of on the fringe or you, you think they might need some encouragement and, you know, somebody to hold their hand and get them to listen to a few episodes before they really start to enjoy it. But and th- those are the people we really want you to get listening to the show because we hear from so many people that when they started listening to the show, either they were hostile to our message or uh, they just were not really on board with the whole skepticism thing. And then, you know, really despite themselves and to their own surprise, after a few, three, ten episodes or whatever, they started to get it and then they became skeptics. So obviously, I mean, the, obviously the podcast is our biggest outreach not everyone listening to it came to us as a skeptic. It's all word of mouth. So we need our existing listeners to be that word of mouth and to keep trying to spread the tendrils as far and wide as possible. Then eventually we'll rule the world, right? That's our ultimate goal. It's a world domination. Okay. Thank you, David. Thanks, guys. Isaac Samsel, who is a, is a Cylon. You're a Cylon, right, Isaac? Uh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> You're a Cylon member. You're supposed to say by your command. <laughs> well, I'm actually a uh, actually a pretty new uh, listener to the show. I've only been listening for well, under a year, actually. Okay, welcome. Thank you. It's uh, I love the podcast. Obviously, I definitely came to the podcast as a skeptic. Um, I've always been a pretty skeptical person. You know, I'm, I'm the guy who uh, rolls his eyes whenever people start talking about uh, the latest UFO sighting or. Dr. Oz, medical bad, whatever. So discovering right. this skeptic's guide felt like, uh, felt very, uh, comfortable. Like felt like your escape to reality? Exactly, my <laughs> escape to reality. So I'm a, a PhD student in electrical engineering at, uh, in Nashville, Tennessee. Cool, cool. So I really wanted to go to the, uh, kind of the boundary of what we're science and what we understand things. So what are the thoughts of the rogues on the, uh, the science behind spirituality? So of course I'm not talking about pseudoscientific ghost hunting or quantum mysticism, but 
from a serious scientific perspective, where does humanity's sense of spirituality kind of come from? And, and how should a good skeptic approach a theory on the subject? Um, a couple of examples I heard recently about um, infrasound being studied as an explanation for, for places that feel haunted. And, of course, the Timothy Leary experiments in the 1960s uh, where psychedelic drugs were used to induce and study spiritual experiences and whatnot. Obviously, I know there are other factors involved, like confirmation bias and groupthink and plain old wishful thinking, but I also think that there kind of has to be something more to the story. And so it, it seems like a, an interesting, it seems like the skeptical movement would be, you know, obviously better off if there were more scientific understanding of the source of, of the spiritual. Like mm -hmm. Can I say real, real quick the, about infrasound? Those infrasound studies get less and less amazing with every single study to the point now where I feel like the majority of them are showing that it's mostly BS. Like there have been a few studies showing that there's an effect, like that sort of haunting, like this could be a real explanation for why people feel certain places are haunted. But then the more large scale studies they do, the the less impressive they come across and the more it seems like it's just a whole lot of uh anomaly hunting. Yeah, that certainly is not established. And it's controversial, I think, at this and I think I agree. It the early stuff was impressive and now there's more and more doubt being cast upon that particular explanation. But my approach to these questions is as any other scientific question. You know, I don't think it has an, a special category. If you, whenever you ask, you know, what about anything behavioral, why do people think or behave a certain way? That is both a neurological, um, I shouldn't say both. It's a neurological, a psychological, and a sociological question simultaneously, which always makes it complicated. Clearly, there is some neuroscience underpinning our predilection for spirituality. And we know that's the case. People can have a sense of being in the presence of God or something profound when they have a seizure. Uh, and people who tend to have seizures where they have those kinds of experiences are hyper-religious. They have what's called hyper-religiosity as a symptom of a neurological disease. Generally speaking, it's the non-dominant temporal lobe epilepsy. So there's parts of our brain that give us experiences that we interpret as profoundly spiritual, but those experiences are interpreted in line with your culture and your identity and your background. So you can't separate it, anything, anything like that from, again, the more psychological and sociological aspects as well, because that's how our brains work. So the only other thing I would say is, um, is be cautious. And I think like as the infrasound example shows that the tendency that skeptics might have is to latch onto any, any physical explanation for alleged spiritual phenomena to go, aha, we have a scientific explanation that completely debunks or explains, you know, why people see ghosts. So it's tempting to, to latch onto that prematurely, but we have to be just as skeptical of those claims as any scientific claim. And because we're dealing with such a complicated area, there's going to be a lot of speculation and a lot of preliminary studies that are not going to pan out. So you got to be cautious. Otherwise, we end up being the true believers uh, falling for confirmation bias because it supports our skeptical worldview. I got to give a shout out to Joe Nickel for being the king, I think, of 
not jumping to the first uh, natural explanation that seems like it might fit. Because I've seen countless cases that he works on where there is an obvious explanation, seemingly, when somebody first describes what they think of as a paranormal phenomena, Joe will say, okay, well, here's the first thing that comes to mind, but that might not be the case. Let's look into it. And there have been several times where Joe has debunked the immediately obvious natural explanation, only to later find a better natural explanation or no explanation, but never being satisfied to just rely upon an unproven natural explanation. And I think it gives him a lot of credibility with people who are on the other side, you know, people who believe in the paranormal. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Isaac. Thanks, Isaac. All right. Next up is Jalita Jacobson. Jalita, welcome to the show. Yeah. uh, Well, I've been a fan of the show for a couple of years, and I'm currently listening to the old ones, and I'm up to maybe 120 at the moment. Mm -hmm. Luckily, there's Mm -hmm. still a lot to go. Police. Skepticism is quite interlinked with atheism because I grew up in a very religious household and I was never really a believer. I sort of was agnostic for a long time and then I started thinking and thinking and thinking and it sort of just led from thinking about religion to being skeptical about other things. Um, And I work in... Educational publishing in Oxford in the United Kingdom. Cool. That's cool. Very okay. cool. I've heard cool. of that place. <laughs> <laughs> hey, what what burning skeptical question do you have for us, Jalita? Uh, well, I was thinking about logical fallacies and like what are the most commonly used logical fallacies by pseudoscientists and like what makes them logical fallacies. First, let me say that, so the logical fallacies that we often talk about on the show and within the skepticism are what we call informal logical fallacies. Uh, the informal logical fallacies are things that are kind of sloppy reasoning, but they, if, if you employ a logical fallacy in an argument, it doesn't necessarily mean the conclusion is wrong, as opposed to the formal logical fallacies where it does mean that the conclusion is wrong. So what that means is that you need context and judgment to know how to apply the logical fallacies. And this all leads to um, what my most annoying or most abused logical fallacy is, and that is the fallacy fallacy. It's the notion that because you think you caught somebody in a logical fallacy, they're wrong and you win. Uh, what's interesting is that um, increasingly over the last four or five years, I mean dramatically so, I have noticed that the true believers, the pseudoscientists, the conspiracy theorists, and the deniers are starting to use the language of skeptics and turn it around against us. And one of the things that they're doing is just wallowing in the fallacy fallacy. They say, oh, that's a, that's an argument from authority because you're, so, you know, you're citing scientists or whatever. And they think that they're catching us in these logical fallacies, but they're doing it wrong because they're, they're, they're employing the fallacies in the most simplistic and childish way without understanding what they really mean, putting them into some kind of, of proper context or judgment. So, that particularly gets me annoyed when people start just slinging logical fallacies left and right as if it makes them right and makes and is winning the argument for them, but they just have really no idea what they're talking about. 
And as bad as it is when it's being done by creationists and whatnot, I, I find it even worse when I see skeptics doing it. And I feel oh, yeah. sometimes somewhat responsible because, you know, we talk about logical fallacies quite a bit. And I feel like sometimes people uh, lean on the idea of fallacies too much in their argumentation uh, as skeptics, and it makes them look really bad. And... Uh, it's it's difficult to convey to people the proper use of recognizing fallacies and uh, calling out your opponents when they use them and how that fits into the broader sort of discussion that you're having. Does that does that fallacy shut down the discussion or does that just give you a chance to clear things up and, uh, you know, start from a different point? So, yeah, I, I agree. That is a... The fallacy, fallacy, fallacy is difficult. Special pleading, ad hoc reasoning. So here's the thing. Because we've been involved in, in certain experiments, certain tests, like the JREF Million Dollar Challenge. We've done some preliminary testing and so forth of people who claim that they can do, you know, psychic readings and know what you're thinking and how the Ouija board works and so forth. And sure enough, when they ultimately fail, as all properly set up scientific tests of these things yield the negative results that are expected. They will always, 100% of the time, always, always, always special, try to special plead their way out of it. The vibrations in the air weren't right. Oh, the skeptic in the room was giving off, you know, bad, bad, bad presence. And, uh, oh, it's not good time of the year because the moon's over in the wrong spot of the sky. Whatever. So it, it's become, it's become so droll and so tiresome, but they all do it because they've got nothing else to, um, back themselves up with so they're basically grasping at the last straws and they all do it and therefore i'm going to say special pleading uh you know i'm very disappointed in those people who, who reach for that one bob or jay you have a favorite logical fallacy i don't know if i'd call it a favorite i'm one i always i see most often i think is confirmation bias to me that that's one of the huge ones i think that it's just so prevalent especially in the, the internet age where there's a billion websites you can go to people go to generally to the to their sites and news sites and discussion sites that confirm what they already believe and know and just to huge echo chambers and they they rarely you know will delve into into areas that uh that that really challenge their worldview and how they think and uh, I, I just think it's, it's just so common. I think it's one of the most common biases out there. Yeah. But again, technically, um, not, the, not the, a fallacy. It's a cognitive bias. That's still my answer. You're allowed. Even if it's not just a real it. fallacy. I'll yes. allow it. Yeah. Well, I, I think if, so I, I, if I were a pseudoscientist and I, and I didn't train myself to be a skeptic for the past 20 plus years, I think I would be swimming in ad hominems. <laughs> yeah. I think I would very much enjoy dispensing them. You know what I mean? I think you, you do enjoy you still do. Them. <laughs> I do. Yeah. I, I, I think, <laughs> don't you think, I, I feel that people don't actually use the ad hominem fallacy as often as people think. Ad hominem right, attacks right. are very common. You're dumb. Jay. Uh, <laughs> that was an example. Hey. It was an example. Uh, it was an example. You're not dumb. It's a lame example. Uh, okay. <laughs> Bob, Subtle your example. clown is ugly. Uh, <laughs> oh. Well, no, that's a point. And that thing behind you is ugly, yeah, too. An ad, an ad hominem, you know, it's, it's an ad hominem attack is one thing. A fallacy is, Bob, you're wrong because your clown is ugly. And they're distinct things that people yeah, don't yeah. always distinguish between. But you could craft it very finely to uh, 
you could discredit somebody. Um, you can and poison do it, the well. Yeah, do it very well, right? You, yeah, exactly. Um, and then in, in a way, that is an ad hom because you know you're you're saying, well, there's all this information that that they've delivered, but I'm going to subtly discredit that person. It's like they, they, this is in politics. You know, this is the the game of politics is is using ad homs to to dissect the uh, your opponent. Mm-hmm. I think it's really effective. I mean, you could get to the, right to the heart, man. Yeah, this guy says blah blah blah, but you know what? He's an asshole. That's really powerful. Julita, any follow-up before we move on? No, I think that answered my question very well. Thank you. Okay, thank you, thank you for joining thank us. You. Hey, do you have your own favorite, by the way? Oh, I don't really know. Maybe from authority? Yeah. yeah. That gets misused yeah, a lot. Because he believes it. Or because it's been used for such a long time, it must be something to it. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, that's, I think also confirmation bias plays into that as well. Because if you think it's going to work, it might just have a placebo effect as well. Yeah, that's a big one. So I think that's one of mine. It really gets on my text. So. Okay. <laughs> I've right, got another favorite. I've, I've got another favorite. Uh, oh, okay. And the Bob. segment's over, Non-se- That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> just roll just roll with it, Steve. Non sequitur. Why do I love non sequitur? There's no connection there, Bob. <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you should have just shouted that in the middle of the next question. <laughs> non sequitur. I like that for the primary reason that I first learned it when I was a little kid watching Star Trek. Star Trek when a robot, when that robot probe said it. Not Star Remember Trek. Remember that episode? No, no. The first time I heard Hello. you hear we heard non sequitur was Robbie the robot on Forbidden Planet. That's non-sequitur. it. Non sequitur. Oh. Yeah. I I don't know <laughs> that they're. They were both a really long time ago. I, I will contend that it was Star Trek where I first heard it. I will contend it's I remember, Robbie I the Robot. I remember hearing it. Now, what was that probe? What was that probe in that I, Trek episode? Oh, you mean Sterilize, that guy? Yes. <laughs> How could I forget? <laughs> All right. Thanks, thanks, Jolita. All right, everyone. We're going to take a quick break to talk about one of our sponsors this week, The Great Courses. It's time to talk about Sean Carroll's new awesome freaking <laughs> course on uh, The Great Courses. Jay, you're talking about the mysteries of modern physics time, right? The one about time? It's it's hosted by Professor Sean Carroll, who we all know. This guy totally rocks. He's clearly one of the luminaries uh, in the field. If you want a really concise, pithy explanation for really difficult science, this is the guy you want to go to. Yeah, I loved uh, his lectures on the connection between our memory and time, how our brain essentially deals with time. We're actually experiencing things a few milliseconds in the past, and our brain has to adjust for that. That is so weird. That would be your favorite. My favorite was how he goes into detail talking about how time travel, which, of course, is so much better than memory, time travel in the movies and in fiction, and he talks even he even talks about how you know how accurate some of the science was in a lot of those things. Well, I think I can speak for us all we, that we really enjoyed this course from The Great Courses, and we want you to check it out as well. They have more than 500 courses on a variety of subjects and formats. They've been around for 25 years. And for a limited time right now, The Great Courses has a special. Order Mysteries of Modern Physics Time and get 80% off the regular price. But hurry, it's for a limited time. To order Mysteries of Modern Physics Time with our special offer from The Great Courses, you must go to thegreatcourses.com slash skeptics. That's thegreatcourses.com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. All right, next up is Julian Sammy. Hello, hello, hello. So... Uh, I think I've been listening to you guys since about episode 20. I'm not entirely sure, but it's been a long, long, long time. And uh, you've certainly changed the way that I talk to other people about skepticism. Uh, I was a skeptic when I came in, but a lot of the people in my life weren't. So 
my question to you is, I think it's not something you've really talked about. It's about getting advice from you on how we can try to integrate skeptical approaches into the workforce, not into like medicine and education, which you've talked about a lot, and, and there's lots of great advice about that. But what about the guy who's a project manager in a, at a bank or whatever, and uh, is seeing people who are you know, trapped by fundamental attribution errors or loss aversion or sunk cost fallacies or that kind of thing where it's not necessarily the person who is the problem, but uh, like the whole system they're embedded in that just uh, has these ingrained fallacies or ingrained uh, biases that prevent people from, well, from being skeptical or from being rational. I, I interviewed for a job once where they made me take this personality test where I had to circle words that I thought described me. And it was just, it was just a giant load of bullshit. And they came back and they were like, uh, oh, you know, so the results t tell us that you are, uh, really outgoing and, uh, you like being around other people. And, and there, it was all this stuff that like he obviously already knew from interviewing me. Like this was my, actually, I think it was like my second visit to, to interview with them. And I had to completely bite my tongue and it really hurt. And I ended up getting the job and afterwards I'm like, you know that that's all bullshit, right? And he's like, no, 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 come on. I mean, it worked. It worked on you, right? And I'm like, And that's oh. when you quit. Yeah, well, I couldn't. And there was like nothing, I couldn't do anything about it. Like I couldn't quit over that, you know, it was paying my rent and there was not, no way to change it because I wasn't in charge of things. I felt completely helpless. So I don't know. Well, you're, you're speaking to the, the experience that I'm talking about. Uh, for some background, I'm, the reason why I care about this, uh, I've been doing business analysis and design thinking and management consulting for a while now. I started out as a coder and ran into you know the same kind of situation Rebecca's talking about umpteen times and being... Uh, smart enough to answer the question and not smart enough to shut up, I spoke up a lot. And I happened to be in a situation where that worked out for me for about seven or eight years while working for a big bank in Canada. Uh, and then speaking out turned out to be not a, bad, a great idea anymore, and I decided that it was time to part ways. You guys have got a lot of experience with reaching out to organizations and institutions that I certainly don't have. And I'm wondering if there's a way to bring this kind of approach to business because you know if we were to save one second per person per year you're talking about I think three lifetimes worth of waste avoidance mm -hmm. it's it's something that I'm passionate about because I work in businesses and I see people who will do things like they'll they'll say well that's really great that you've got all this evidence and can show us exactly what the right decision is based on all the evidence but my gut says we should do this you know, and and that's maddening. Yeah, it's 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 difficult because you know, especially if you're a cog in a very large machine and you don't have the authority. But you know, we, I typically there's no magic answer to it. But you know, I typically I'll tell people just you know be the persistent, quiet voice of reason and critical thinking in whatever situation, institution, culture, environment you find yourself in, and that has an effect. And to give you some specific ideas, um, like I've given uh, talks. Uh, and lectures to 
organizations. I just gave a lecture to the USDA, in fact, about critical thinking. And that's because one guy was a listener of the show and recommended me for a talk. And now everyone in his department got a good dose of skepticism and, and hopefully it had some impact. So there are things like that you can do. People are individuals can request for, for those sorts of things to happen. Um, and just give your little voice of protest. If you see something pseudoscientific happening, you don't have to necessarily risk your job over every single little thing, but, you know, just to say, hey, maybe you, you'd want to know about this. Providing actual references, like here's a, oh, I read this article about, you know, using personality profiling for hiring that you might be interested in. Look and just hand it to them and just, and walk away. You know, you don't have to get, you don't have to be an asshole or hit them over the head with it, but just being that, constant persistent voice of reason and information and and when when opportunities arise you're being a little opportunistic like to bring in some more hard-hitting critical thinking or skepticism it all has a cumulative effect so just keep plugging away i certainly agree you know steve that being persistent being polite being uh caring but also being insistent that perhaps evidence is more important than what you had for lunch and how it's affecting Mm -hmm. your gut uh, that's great. If there's a, a systemic way or any kind of way that that this, the rogues and the skeptics who listen to this podcast and who are you know like it on Facebook can start to try to apply these ideas at their jobs, I think it could have a, a really large yeah. effect. Because um, I mean, there's so much money, time, and effort spent in a workplace, and so much of that money, time, and effort is wasted. I, I agree. I think overall, that 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 is, I think, an unmet need, and uh, essentially skepticism in the workplace or corporate skepticism. I think that most people and and companies or whatever that are providing uh, training sessions and information to corporations are spewing utter bullshit. Uh, the culture is just rife with nonsense. And I think that's an area that skeptics need to expand into significantly. We need to significantly expand what we're doing in sort of the corporate arena because most people work for a corporation. And it's an area where, you know, we can have an impact. You know, we did give a talk to Google a couple of years ago and it was great. But we'd like to, we should love to give that to a hundred different companies, you know. Yahoo, just, Bing, yeah. <laughs> Ask Jeeves. Yeah. CompuServe. Well, if there's anybody who's listening and who's interested in this and on the forums, then maybe this is something where we can we can try to yeah bring skepticism into your company. I think that's a good initiative. Mm-hmm. All right, thanks. Thank Julie. you very much. Thanks, Julie. Thanks. All right, next up is Justin Pagano. Justin. Hey, hey. Um, yeah. So I uh, I'm not a long time listener yet. I, I just started listening to the podcast a little under a year ago. Um, I just around that time had just started binging on other similar podcasts like uh, Rationally Speaking and Inquiring Minds. I'm wondering for all of you as skeptics, do you have any recommendations on how to best apply skepticism and rational inquiry to topics that mostly deal with politics, economics, and government? Um, you know, usually when we're talking about skeptical thinking, talking about scientific issues and pseudoscientific issues. You know, things with global warming and GMOs and vaccines, those are largely rooted in in scientific evidence, even though they have political implications. But for political topics, universal health care, certain government regulations, even political or government systems, anarcho-communism or state socialism, blah, 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 you know, all these things have a huge effect on 
the citizens of a society where those regulations are enacted or not enacted. So, so do you guys have, um, you know, go-to resources you you look to when you evaluate political and economic claims and government regulations? Do you have any, you know, red flags that go off in your head or the alarms that set off your balloon? Need detection kits like when quantum is overused when talking about medicine and such things. Mm -hmm. There's no like one resource that I would say like is the place to go. And and in any case, you wouldn't want to rely on one resource. The the problem with any politically charged topic is that it can be overwhelmed with values and subjectivity, and so it's all the more reason that you want to get as many different opinions as possible. So. I think what's more important than any one source that you may use is the process that you use, which is obviously the same as any generic, uh, generic skeptical approach to any question. It just, it actually takes a lot more work though when the question is political for a number of reasons. There's a lot more pitfalls. One of the pitfalls is that you will confuse your own political ideology for reason and rationalism without recognizing where your, your personal value judgments are coming into play. So it's the first thing you have to do is separate what are the value judgments versus what is an objectively scientific question. Like if we're talking about gun control, does gun control work? Well, you have to really break it down to questions that science can answer, like what is the change in violent crimes with a specific policy? You also have to recognize that that doesn't necessarily mean that one political policy is quote unquote correct because there are values that also come into play, like how much freedom are we willing to surrender in order to secure a certain amount of safety? That's an inherently value-based decision, not a scientific question. Um if you get to abortion, you know, we can answer questions about where, uh, you know, what is the experience, the neurological sophistication or development of a fetus at different stages of the pregnancy, et cetera. But science will never answer, you know, what's more valuable, the right of the mother or the right of the unborn child. At some point, you have to make a value judgment. You can use philosophy and ethical decision making, but you can't separate it entirely from value. So, even among self-identified skeptics, I see that it's very common, for example, uh, for libertarian skeptics to think that their libertarian philosophy is the true skepticism and is the true reason. And for liberal skeptics to think that unless you're liberal, you're not really skeptical. And you know, being skeptical means agreeing with my political ideology. And you have to be very, very, very careful about that. So you have to be the most skeptical of your own views. And and when you're trying to, like as you say, get to the bottom of what the truth is about a question, is recycling good, you know, whatever it is, what the pro part of the process is to try to separate it from your own your own values as much as possible, try to identify what they are, but also to try to you have to you definitely have to get opinions from from all sides of the political spectrum because otherwise you can't ever wrap your head around what the real issues are and what the real data is you're gonna it's good like uh when I read articles about you know highly political topics. Pretty much every source I go to has some kind of ideological filter in place. Mm -hmm. 
Right. There is no unbiased news. There there's is no unbiased. Yeah, it's like nothing none. is unbiased. So I, all the best I could do is try to balance the biases out by trying to get as many different sources as possible and see, right. or at the end of the day, who has the better argument? But I, you've had, you have to wade through argument and counter argument and counter argument and counter argument before you sort of get an idea of where it's settling in. And you have to do that without applying your own ideology to the process. And it's just really tricky. Uh, and also John Oliver's last week tonight is the absolute best thing that has happened to political journalism. In Isn't the last that a fantastic show? Yeah, it's awesome. I, I love him. He's Nobody awesome. is doing more hard hitting, yep. myth busting right now than John Oliver. Okay. Thanks, Justin. Thanks, Justin. Good question. Good question. Matt Jones, welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit about yourself. So my name is Matt Jones. I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm a Woo! programmer out here. And I'm also the president of the San Francisco Amateur Astronomers. Awesome. Cool. Cool. We'll definitely have to come out. I'm looking forward to you guys coming uh, next month. Yes, we will have been there in November. I know. <laughs> it was awesome. Thank you for being It will have been today. awesome, I'm sure. It was a, it was a great, great time, especially when uh, – never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Keep the secrets to ourselves. So my question is one that's uh, asked probably pretty often, but I think it's something that's pretty important and needs to be talked about as much as possible. So as uh, pretty much the leaders of uh, skeptical and science communicators, uh, what do you see as the biggest challenge promoting science to the general public? Like, uh, do you think it's the governments out there blocking information, like the climate change, uh, religion, Fox News, something different? God, that's a really, really good question, and so many freaking answers I, I can think of. So the question is, what what's the, the the biggest thing or the biggest things that are blocking uh, science education or just people's understanding of of science? I, I think or, both the understanding and the. I mean, I, I consider like Fox News is kind of the biggest uh, source lying to the population and creating the biggest source of misinformation. So, and I know that counters are objective, like directly. So, for me, it's education. It's uh, science standards in education. Dealing with uh, improving the system earlier in life, more introduction to science earlier in the children's life. Uh, people are growing up not having a clue what the scientific method is, not understanding at all what critical thinking is, because these things are not taught. In the courses, instead, they're taught things like rote history and strange ways to spell things or other sort of, you know, what I consider less than useful activities. Um, I think if there was more of that at the primary school or, you know, grade school, especially the younger kids, then the kids would be instilled more to want to learn these things, especially as they become adults. When they become young adults and adults, it's a little harder to... Uh, to get through some of the things, uh, either bad habits that they learned or bad science that they learned along the way or no science that they learned along the way. Uh, I think that would be best overreaching way to do it to the majority of people. Evan, I agree that early fostering a, an interest in science early on in not only home life, but uh, obviously in schools as well is big, is, is really big. But there's also another problem, I think, with, with science in general that's inherent that I don't think we're ever going to get away from and it's related to psychology. People like people like certainty. They like truth, and those are things that you know an ideology can give them. But science can't really give that to you. They can give science gives you you know well the, you know the likelihood, the overwhelming likelihood. Or I'm very confident. Science doesn't give you 100 percent certainty, and people love that. People want that. So that's always going to be a barrier for people to be you know to to be really accept and really be into science. I think. Yeah, I think it there. 
they're all related. It's all interacting in the culture. You know, education is bad because, well, who's in charge of the education? It's the gullible people who weren't educated themselves and who are, you know, getting sucked into a vortex of political ideology. And I think there, there's a lot of false authority figures on TV. You know, Dr. Oz, don't get me started, but I mean, I think Dr. Oz is a lot more damaged than Fox News, honestly, because he's, he does come off as somebody with authority. He's speaking to millions of people and he's like just seamlessly mixing in bullshit with just with real advice. And so people can't tell the difference, but he's successful. He is where he is because of the culture, which gets back to the education, which gets back to social issues, which drive the whole thing. So they're all interacting and we got to fight them all at once, I think, to try to move things in, in a better direction. Yeah. My only comment is um, I I don't really have an answer. I mean, I, I agree with a lot of things that everybody said, but I, I'm more like just observing and I, I know a lot of teenage aged people. I observe this, this, distinct lack of wonder and it's so weird to me you know you're talking to a teenager when when bob steve and i were teenagers we were into so many different things we were into so much science we were into science Science fiction we were yeah we were we were constantly doing stuff making stuff breaking stuff doing all sorts of things and i you know and without naming names i'll just talk you know talking to teenager a that i know right i mean you ask them what they're doing and they they don't do anything it's video games and texting. These kids today. Know? Yeah, well, you guys are. You're <laughs> sounding super old, right? I don't know. I well, you know what though? There's a there's a fallacy in that. There there is a different. There yeah. is a difference between <laughs> that this generation and our generation. There is. I don't know. Jay. There absolutely I think is. Every, every generation thinks that. No, big for good and for good and for bad. There's a difference, and I'm I'm just noticing well, a pattern. I'm not like looking for it. I'm just noticing it. Ugh. I may get chastised for not having the data in front of me, but I mean, haven't our math and science scores kind of dropped over the last couple of decades, uh, as far as I know, or they certainly haven't increased. They've been stagnant at least, and I think they've gone down, you know, as far as I, I, I think so. Or is it just that the rest of the world is doing a, because there was a time when we were, the United States, at least from what I understand, was like kind of a, the leader in those um, subjects of education, but now we're, you know, we're in the middle of the pack somewhere, probably at best. Yeah, that's, we don't have time to get into that whole thorny issue of comparing educational outcomes. You, the, the data is horribly biased. You know, other countries only include the most achieving kids in their, in their standardized statistics, whereas we include mm. everybody. It's just hard to compare. Overall, the population is actually getting smarter, which I know is amazing oh, that's good. to hear that. But there's this steady, slow creep up in IQ over decades. That, and that's awesome to hear, Steve. Yeah, that's really, no, true. When you see, actually, it's, scientists don't know why. Like They're trying to figure out why that is. But <laughs> it's been observed now for like 80 years. Every decade, we go up by a couple IQ points. So I do think – it's the bias. It's the G- There's a bias of you're looking at the world from your own generation and everyone seems to see the same thing. And you have to get out of that and get some objective data before you can make any sweeping statements. I know. I mean, I, I, I almost preambled by saying, hey, I'm just yeah. through my personal observation. But, you know. Okay. All right. I mean, Thanks, Matt. Yeah. All right. We're going to get to Mike Espinos. Espinos. Hey, guys. Yeah, my name is Mike, um, teacher. I teach middle school. Oh. And so following up with what everyone's doing about education, 
Um, my question, well, first off, uh, I've only been listening for about six months now. I really enjoy, really enjoy everything I've been hearing. Been a skeptic most of my life, but I'm generally surrounded by people who I can't talk to about it, so it's good to hear uh, people out there. Um, what you're talking about in education, when I taught fourth grade, uh, we were given two hours a week to split between social studies and science for our kids. <laughs> and, two hours um, a week? Yes, two hours a week that we had to split between social studies and science. That's, that's pathetic as far as wow. I'm concerned. Could you possibly cover in a week between those two topics? I mean, what the hell were you focusing on? What, what, were, the, what, what were you spending all that time on? Nothing. We got nothing accomplished. And um, now I teach middle school in a uh, fairly well-to-do school district, and I'm a STEM instructor, which stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Mathematics. Cool. Um, the problem I run into, though, is teachers have a similar uh, do-no-harm method as, as doctors, where we can't um, imprint our ideas on our students. So when my students bring ideas to me, like uh, we recently had a bunch of students who were like, oh, 9-11 was an inside job, and all the other conspiracy theories we get. As a teacher and as a, as a skeptic, how can I best lead them to information without um, imprinting or giving a bias to the students or, or betraying my own bias? Another general approach, like a student asks you about 9-11 or whatever, is rather than giving them an answer, which you feel may be stepping over the line, you could just ask them back, take the Socratic method, just say, well, how could we know? Let's, let's make it into a lesson. You know, how would, could somebody know what actually happened? Uh, and what are different people saying? And then give them sort of a method for investigating it, which is really what you want them to learn anyway. Not necessarily your opinion about what happened, or if they if the student is not asking but coming into the classroom with ridiculous claims or pseudoscientific claims, then you can encourage them to question those conclusions again rather than directly contradicting them or giving your own opinions. So that's kind of a way to sneak in the skepticism. It's actually what you want to teach them anyway. Okay, thanks a lot, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Keep up Thank the good you, work, Mike. All right, next up is Mike Williams, our second Mike of the evening. Yeah, there's a few of us out there. <laughs> Hi, Mike. Hi. Hey, Mike. Hi, uh, hey, Mike. Hello, everyone. All right, uh, yeah, my name's Mike. I'm in Fort Worth, Texas, and uh, I've been listening to this show, I think, about seven years or so now, and I enjoy it very much. It's one of the few podcasts I have to listen to every week, so I enjoy that quite a bit. Uh, my question is a, a little bit lighter fare. Uh, I'm about halfway through the second Game of Thrones book, and it seems cool. it, it, I get the idea, at least from reading, that that the society, technology, just just the basic construction of the world that they all live in has been about the same for the past several hundred, if not thousands, of years. And not that I want to speculate on fictional universes and everything, but I'm just wondering what you guys think. Could a society of supposedly intelligent beings to survive and thrive without any kind of technological, moral, you know, sociology progress. It is. I, I had that exact question when I was reading the Game of Thrones because it was clear that they were sort of technologically stable over a long period of time. And I had the exact same questions occurred to me. One thought that I had, which again, I'm just reading this into the novels, is that magic, the, the fact that magic existed, at least until very recently, did, would, could that have had a stagnating effect on non-magical technology? If you could solve your problems by having 
a wizard cast a spell, then you don't need to develop the technology. So, of course, we have no way of knowing if that's true or not because there's no magic in the real world. But I just thought that there there are some analogies where, you know, that um, need definitely spawns innovation and development. And if the need wasn't there because of magic, that, that could stagnate it. But the deeper question is, you know, could a society survive without progressing? And that's that's a really interesting question. And I think uh, I do think that we tend to have this 20th century, 21st century bias of thinking that it is the natural state of any culture or society to progress, especially to progress technologically. But that's just a bias. You know, there, there's that's just we're just looking at our recent history and thinking that it's typical, but it's not necessarily slow. So, I mean, societies can stagnate or, or even regress um, and they'll survive. They may not thrive, you know, but they won't necessarily go extinct just because they're not progressing technologically. We're only talking about like a thousand, two thousand years or so, right? I'm trying to think of what the timeline looks like in Song of Ice and Fire. In our world, yeah, we definitely have cultures that have remained technologically stagnant for that amount of time. And the main problem is when they run into another culture that has not remained technologically stagnant. So, I mean, if you've read Ishmael, that's what that's all about, is this idea that you get into this technological arms race. So if your entire world is proceeding at the same rate, then there's no reason really why you would have to get into that. Like there is no arms race. You know, everybody's stagnant. So, yeah, you could continue to exist. And what, what's particularly interesting is that they've, they're actually in a bit of a magical dark ages because they did have much more magic before and even techniques like with dragon fire where um, that over the years have sort of fallen by the wayside and not completely lost but not terribly in use you know that you know Tyrion then brings back for the mm-hmm. um, battle of blackwater i also got the sense though that the world in the book is in de- is in decline this is a society in decline. They're not doing well. Yeah. And, yeah, that's kind of my point is that it mirrors, you know, the our dark ages were about a technological stagnation. Uh, theirs is about a magical stagnation because magic seems to have taken the place of technology yeah. in that could, world. Can I correct that misconception that, Rebecca, our, our – the period of time that is typically referred to as the dark ages European. was – what the European Dark Ages was actually a time of technological, a great technological advance. It, Outside of Europe, maybe. No, no, in Europe. Outside of Europe, there were several. There were several technological advances, but there were very few scientific advances. Well, not you know scientific that we could argue about that. It's it it, it certainly was nothing compared to the later Enlightenment, but. You said, you said technological. That's why I just want to be clear. Actually, technology was progressing right through the dark ages. The notion that the dark ages were, were intellectually stagnant was really a myth that was created by later generations to congratulate themselves on how enlightened they were in contrast to the prior backward dark ages. You're absolutely right that the dark ages have been uh, unfairly 
stigmatized in a way. But yeah. that's a I've and I've seen Christian apologist historians argue for this idea that uh technology was proceeding exactly as it should have been throughout the Dark Ages. Uh but it's simply not true. Uh the technological advances that happened during the Dark Ages were things forced by necessity. Yeah. Uh and they were the the things that were needed at the time. There was practically no scientific innovation during that period in Europe. Uh, there were, like, farming advances, things like that, yes. Yeah. Were they on the scale that they would have been had this crackdown by the church not happened? I don't think so, and plenty of historians don't think so. No, I agree that in, that uh, scientifically, in terms of thinking, th things were being oppressed by the rule of authority and the church, absolutely. But... Um, yeah, we just do have to just keep technology separate from like scientific advances. Burke, who wrote The Day the Universe Changed, explicitly states that technological progress during the Dark Ages was actually booming. And as far as I know, he's not a Christian apologist. All right. Thanks, Mike. Well, we're taking another break from our show to talk about an old sponsor that's coming back, the Dollar Shave Club. All right, guys, I'm, I'm fully signed up. I think I've been on this for like six months. I mean, it, look, I'm not buying those ridiculously expensive razors anymore, and they're no better. They're, the quality is the same. I love the handle. I also like the fact that they send you some fun stuff to read while you're on the toilet. <laughs> oh, <laughs> okay. It's yeah, it's just every month is different, and it's all funny. Yeah, so get your razors from dollarshaveclub.com. For just a couple of bucks, dollarshaveclub.com delivers amazing razors right to your doorstep. And as Jay was saying, they're fantastic. They arrive on time when you need them, and frankly, nothing feels better than that. What I love, guys, it arrives like clockwork, because how many times have you used a razor, you're too lazy to go to damn CVS and get new razors, so you're using this razor that you should have stopped using about two weeks ago, and you're all cut up, just right there when you get home from work. It, I love then it. Then you pour lemon juice Ow. in it. I hate that. Oh, ouch. <laughs> ouch. Yeah, you can also tweak your, your membership so if you want them to come more frequently or less frequently, they'll let you do that. Awesome. Yeah, so try dollarshaveclub.com slash SGU. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash SGU. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. Let's see. Next up, we got Nicholas Baker. Hi, how's it going? Hey, Nick. Hey Nicholas. Hey, man. Uh, so I'm a um, journalist, a uh, video reporter, and I live in Paris, so it's about 4 o'clock in the morning here. Ah, bonjour. Hey, cool. What's up, man? So I've traveled extensively, and so I've experienced firsthand the, the damage that comes from a lack of critical thinking. So I've been a, a freelance journalist for about seven years now, and in 10 days I'm going to start a new job, uh, my first steady job in seven years, and I'm going to be working with the CNRS which is the French National Center for Scientific Research. And uh, they want me to contribute my, my journalism experience to kind of jazz up the videos that they post online. And so uh, my question regards, you know, science communicating in general, uh, what I want to know, um, since you guys are, are keen observers of science reporting, where do you think uh, you should draw the line between, you know, information uh, that you want to get across and, kind of the pretty packaging that you put around around that information. Uh, I mean, all communication or journalism, all the stories are messages uh, that are wrapped in, you know, some kind of style, text or video editing, and you need to hook people into watching your story. Uh, and it's kind of a game of seduction. So, I mean, 
where's the balance? Where's the balance to, to have, you know, good science reporting and have it as, you know, sexy as possible so that uh, you can hook as many people, especially if you're trying to make uh, it as mainstream as possible. Part of the problem is that it is a competition, right? So it's not, you know, they're not all in a bubble. Like, everyone's vying for the same audiences. And, you know, the first thing that they do is the titles are just super eye-grabby and may not even be representative of what the actual content of the article is or even a layer deeper. They might, the article might not even be representative of the information that it's supposedly reporting on, right? So we all know these problems. So, so just starting from the basics, like, okay, so let's cut the shit. Let's actually report on, you know, read the, the study that you're, you're talking about. Read the paper that you're talking about and make sure that there is a science journalist that can actually grasp the material. Because today, there, there aren't that many science trained journalists out there that, that can read it and digest it for themselves. So that's a big problem. So they're not even really writing about a lot of times what the, what the material is. And then, of course, on the, on the top, they're going to put a, a, you know, really eye, eye catchy graphic and a real eye catchy title. And by the time you get, you get all that on paper, you, you, you're not even representing what the real story is about. So I don't know what to say to you other than like, let's cut the bullshit from the very beginning. Let's get back down to the roots of what, what, you know, the reporting needs to be redone almost. It has to focus on the actual facts. The, the journalist has to have a very strong grasp of what they're talking about and, and maybe not in such a mad rush and can actually talk to experts and get, a, you know, some, some detailed opinions on the thing that they're talking about as well. Um, and for crying out loud, don't make a f- top 10 list about it. But my goal is always to not compromise between being informative and being sexy. And that takes thinking about, all right, what in here is real that is going to be a good hook? Because science is cool. There's always some really good hook in there. You just may have to work to find the real one and not just go for the easy ones that everyone's doing. You know, the cliches, you know, will this cure cancer? You know, just don't, don't go for those. Just try to find some way to package the real interesting message there. And then the rest is, you know, it is kind of tied with teaching. It's like you're, depending on if you're, if you're talking to a general audience who is not going to have a lot of technical information about the topic, you know, you can be absolutely correct at your level that you're explaining something. There may be deeper and deeper and deeper levels. That's always going to be true. Unless you're publishing in the technical literature, there's always going to be deeper levels of complexity and understanding. But you, what you're shooting for is it's true as far as it goes, but I'm, I'm only going to a depth that is appropriate for the target audience. And there's no formula for that. That just takes understanding the material, understanding your audience, and there's some there is some experience and artistry in there. Yeah, I always I always try to push the edge on, on my posts. I know I can't make it crazy technical, but I always try to make it. I try to always throw something that's that may be a little bit technical, but but very very interesting. And then I always try to put in links, supplemental links to really explain maybe in more detail what I just don't have the space to go into, but it's tough. And I'm not sure I would even like writing science for a, a super general mainstream audience because I, I like the, you know, the real, not, not so much technical, but just the really fascinating far, you know, f- more far out stuff. And, 
and a little bit technical, but not a lot. But Bob, you're 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 writing to a scientifically savvy audience, right? Yeah, yeah which is why I don't you that know, helps. Feel bad, but do it's it. absolutely, it's a different animal. Absolutely. You know, it's important Absolutely. not to uh, underestimate the intelligence of your audience, even if you don't think that they're necessarily going to be the brightest crayons in the box. You uh, still, you know, treat them like adults, and they, your audience will come to you. So my recommendation is that you make things as entertaining as you want to right. make them, but then uh, go back over, and one thing I do often is a bit of a luxury I have being on Skeptic is always having a scientist on hand that I can run something past and mm-hmm. say, does this make sense to you? Am I misrepresenting this in any way? Uh, because that sort of feedback to me is invaluable. And knowing when they're, when they're making a good point about something that you're completely screwing up on and when they're just being overly pedantic. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's a tough line, but mm-hmm. it's doable. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's been invaluable for me. I I have a a couple physicists and astrophysicists that I talk with regularly to check my you know astronomy and physics posts, and they oh my god, they have saved my butt. You know, it's like oh wow, I didn't really know that. Or they give me they they give me insight into like their 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 life as a scientist that it, um that I would never be really privy to, and uh and just very subtle facts. And like Steve said, there are so many deeper layers, and sometimes that information can be very helpful. Uh, to know, you know, at a, at a couple of levels deeper what, you know, what they're really getting at. So I just, I love my, you know, my friends that help me out with that. It's great. Nicholas has an obstacle that none of us have as bloggers in that he has an editor that he has to report to. And I don't know how much control editors have over like headlines of certain news items. Um, actually, actually, I'm going to be the chief editor. So <laughs> you're okay, coming. Great. Never mind. So that happens. <laughs> and that's, I'm going to be I'm going to be I'm going to be working directly with the researchers. Yeah. So the, I mean, okay. the uh, accuracy is not going to be an issue really. Awesome. It's just, okay. uh, and and the the to explain it a bit more is uh, the audience today is a very scientifically literate uh, audience, but what. Part of the the job is to kind of open it up to a, a broader audience, and so that's kind of what I'm have to do is yeah. just try to work with more people, make it more understandable for for a wider audience. I'm glad you're in the pilot seat, and not someone else. All right, thanks, Nick. And Kasai, is this your birthday? It is my birthday. Happy, Happy birthday. birthday! Happy birthday! You hey. wouldn't remember this, Steve. Are you How psychic? Did I know that? Absolutely. <laughs> All right, hit us with hit, give us a little uh, a question over here. Well, let me start with I'm very honored to be on your show. I have great respect for all the SDU panelists and, and your mission to educate the public and skepticism. Thank you, sir. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Sounds very natural. So, uh, when when I was 19, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and I felt it was my responsibility to make sure I take my medication and stay healthy. Um, two years ago, I discovered mindfulness-based stress reduction, MBSR for short, and have been practicing mindfulness since. So whenever I look for information regarding mindfulness, it is always backed with spirituality or woo and rarely with evidence. I know mindfulness is fairly new to medicine, but my question is this. What are your opinions on mindfulness in medicine? Why isn't there much research in mindfulness and its benefits to mental health? Or am I just not finding it? Most of what I can find is fMRI studies to show what the brain is doing while someone is meditating, but I don't believe this is a study for benefits of mindfulness, but rather just another brain study. 
Many spiritual bloggers would use research like this to say it can cure mental illnesses, but truly none of these studies claim anything like that. I'm pretty familiar with the mindfulness meditation literature. I've read as much of it as I can, and it's frustratingly crappy is the is the problem. Uh, the clinical research, on most of it doesn't do the kind of controls that would enable us to identify specific variables and their influence on the outcome. So they're kind of failing science 101, identify very specific variables and control for them. So, for example, you may find a study where they have one group does mindfulness meditation and the other group does nothing, and they look for whatever, blood pressure. And the people who are doing the mindfulness meditation, their blood pressure is lower. Of course it is. They're, you're relaxing for an hour a day. So what, what I'd like to see are clinical studies where they actually control for the different aspects of mindfulness meditation. Like how about what happens when somebody spends the same amount of time playing video games or reading a book or just we just want you to sit quietly for an hour a day, and that's one group. And the other group could do one type of meditation, and the other group a different type of meditation. I suspect there won't be much of a difference between those groups, but you never see those studies because I, I get the sense that a lot of these studies are by people who are trying to promote mindfulness meditation. So they do a study that's almost guaranteed to show a positive result. But I agree with you on the fMRI studies. They're descriptive. It's like we looked at the brain and stuff was happening. Therefore, magic, you know, whatever. Therefore, it's whatever we want it to be. And it's a lot of post hoc rationalization where there's no really a priori reason to say that, you know, that what they're finding on the fMRI studies have any particular meaning. Like we're changing the brain through meditation. Well, no matter what you do, you're changing the brain. Living in life, it changes your brain. So the, you know, we're, we're kind of in this early descriptive preliminary research phase, but I just don't see us getting out of it because I don't see that anyone is really interested in breaking down the actual variables because I think that if they did that, we're going to find it's just relaxation and there's not anything else to it than that. But I would happily believe whatever the evidence showed, we just don't have good evidence. And, you know, there are definite benefits of just relaxation. So if mindfulness is the thing that helps you focus on doing that, you know, and I, I have several friends, skeptics, secular, you know, not at all spiritual people who are practicing mindfulness and find it really helpful for their anxiety and things like that. Uh, would it be the same as playing a video game? I don't know. They don't like video games. They like mindfulness, you know, so it's not like I am glad that they've found it and that they're doing that. I would love to see more studies on it. I think that so long as you're not skipping your meds for it, if it's just something you're doing and you're finding some joy in it, then great. You know, so long as you're not uh, doing it as this thing that is going to cure bipolar or, you know, any other major mental health issue, uh, I think it's fine. Yeah, if that's your way of relaxing, it's fine. There's nothing negative about it. Yeah. But scientifically, I'd like to see some more meaty studies. Yeah, definitely. I had a physical last week, and my doctor actually recommended I do it. The, the idea was I'm so busy, and I work until about 11 o'clock at night pretty much every night with something. 
and I don't have enough time to relax. And he was saying, you know, that doing this could actually help you, uh, like kind of live more in the moment because I'm just always go, 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 go like that. And he's like, you never sit there and just have a few hours to like chill out. So I don't know. I mean, I'm willing to give it a try. And, uh, other than that, I don't have anything technical to say. I just think it's, it is an interesting idea. About what, uh, Rebecca said earlier about the difference between mindfulness and playing video games. So I do both. I actually play video games competitively and I feel like mindfulness and video games are just the opposites of each other because with mindfulness you need to just stay in the present moment and if you're playing a video game you're in another world, you know? You're not in the present moment right now. You're in the video game. I completely agree with you. I I was speaking purely as a way of talking about what the end results are. And, you know, in in a hypothetical, if the end results are the same and, you know, you do one or you do the other to relax, then great. But I completely agree with you. And I, I think that I really like the idea of a movement focused on just sitting there and thinking about thoughts and, you know, centering yourself. I, I like that sort of thing. It's not for everybody, but. Yeah. It's a shame we don't have much research on this because I mean, I feel like there might be benefits to this, but I can't make any conclusions unless there's proper science and no one wants to do it. And it's kind of sad that that's the case. All right. Thanks. Kusai. Thanks for your question. Thanks. Kusai. Good question. One more. Alex. Alex and the Droogies. I'm excited to talk to you guys. I My name is Alex, and I uh, I live in Utah, and my wife and I both, we just bought a house actually just recently. Hey, good for you. Congratulations. Awesome. I became a skeptic when, like, the multi-level marketing culture out here is really prevalent in Utah, and there's a lot of, like, conventions we would go to. There's a bunch of business conventions my dad and I would go to when, when we were running a, our business for ourselves. We'd go to, like, chamber of commerce meetings and stuff, and... Mm-hmm. People are always talking about all the mixed MLM, you know, the the like the no, Tahitian noni juices and all that oh, stuff. Yeah. And so, I had one guy. There was um, I forget what it was called, but there was some drink. I asked uh, one of our friends, and he was a nice guy, but I asked him how it worked, and he said um, he just looked me straight in the eye and he said quantum physics. <laughs> <laughs> and I, of course, I was so at the point, at that time I wasn't really a skeptic, but I still knew enough at least. You to, still knew that that was a bunch of crap. Man, that, <laughs> it's like subtitle. I have no idea yeah. what is in this drink. I started a conversation with him, and we started talking about stuff. He said he had the cure to cancer in his office. He's like, it's homeopathic. It it cures the oh, the source of the problem. Not it's not allopathic like westernized medicine. I had no idea what he was talking about, and so I went to Google, and that's the first time I actually found your guys' show. Really? Um, so from that point forward. I, uh, I consider myself a skeptic, and I'm a lot more educated when it comes to that stuff. Cool. Good. That's awesome. Good. <laughs> I'll That's get to my awesome. question. So my wife has a lot of health issues. with uh, She's had, got chronic migraines all the time, and so we've been going to, like, doctors for several years trying to find, figure out what the problem is and, and stuff like that. But we were actually shocked. We've, uh, we've gone to a lot of different uh, neurologists and, and different specialists to see if we could figure out what the problem is, and she's got MRIs and stuff like that. And eventually, like, they can't really find anything, and they prescribe her pain medication and stuff. But I've been amazed at how many doctors, like real actual professional, medical professionals, refer us to word-of-mouth medicine or uh, a lot of alternative medicine stuff. And 
had I not been, had we not been skeptics already, I could see us right now wasting a ton of our hard-earned money trying to figure out what's going on, you know, paying a bunch of snake oil salesmen. Mm. Uh, and I just was curious, how, how would you guys, how do you guys deal with a situation like that where the alternative medicine community, all that woo has kind of seeped into, you know, the actual real professional medical community? Yeah, it's maddening. Uh, it's even happened to me. I mean, my wife and I had to bring one of our children to a physician for some particular purpose. And like the first meeting, they were flirting with the nonsense and I started pushing back. And then my wife's like, you know, don't be rude and don't let's give her a chance and <laughs> blah, blah, blah. I'm like, fine, let's, well, I'll keep my mouth shut next time and we'll just give her a chance. <laughs> and then the next time the floodgates of woo opened and then we left that meeting and wife's like, oh, God, you were right. That was a complete waste of time. Total and utter Steve, waste how the hell did you not oh, go apeshit on that? I mean, that poor doctor had no idea who the hell was in his office. No, it's true. It's true. <laughs> oh, my God. So Chuck Norris of skepticism. Yeah, don't uh, even bring up that asshole. It's Bob. scary. <laughs> Whatever. So I mean, I just you know you have to find a practitioner who has an appropriately skeptical attitude within headache medicine, and you know if you don't know, I'm actually a, board, a certified headache specialist. Uh, hey. It it's pretty good. I mean, I think that you know among my colleagues, I don't see a lot of it. The one thing that sort of crept in is acupuncture, is getting the referral to the acupuncturist, and it's the same thing. The studies are all crappy. The ones that are where they control for variables actually show it doesn't work, but then the acupuncturists say it does work because they completely misinterpret the negative studies to to make them seem hmm. positive. You know, the deception is really disgusting, and. You know, even you know, physicians are not necessarily scientists. A lot of them have, you know, very practical training in the clinical medicine, but aren't necessarily trained as critical thinkers or scientists. And so if you have a desperate patient who is, you know, hounding you to fix them, uh, I honestly think that some of, some physicians will refer you to that just as a way of getting you out of their office for a little while. You know, it's like, Wow. That's that's terrible. Patients with migraines who are what we call refractory, you know, medication refractory, they just we, we do everything we know how to do and just not 100% of people respond. So you still you everyone's going to have patients is going to collect these patients who just were sort of I've run through my entire repertoire and nothing works. So physicians get desperate too. You know, you get desperate for uh, what's the next thing we can try? Well, uh, you know, I may not really believe in the evidence for acupuncture, know how it works, but, you know, some people think it works, so it's probably not going to hurt. At least it'll get them out of my office for a little while, you know. So, which is not a great reason to do it, but I think that that's, that motivation comes in as well. Uh, and I have patients ask me about it all the time. And, you know, if I didn't know the acupuncture literature up and down, it, it could be hard to know exactly how to answer their questions. Um, it's certainly useful to be able to say, well, I've read all of the studies of acupuncture and headache, and they actually show that it doesn't work, so I don't recommend it. That kind of negative, like saying, I know enough to say this doesn't work, that's a lot harder than saying that something may work or does work. It actually takes a lot more knowledge to be able to make negative statements than positive statements. And so I could see how a lot of physicians, unless they specifically looked into it on their own interest, they probably um, wouldn't feel comfortable enough to conclude that it's not even worth trying. You know what I mean? That's a that's a pretty high threshold, actually. 
And I just I think most physicians don't get there. So how do you deal with when you go, you've seen uh, you know a bunch of different doctors and they still don't know exactly what's wrong, and some of them refer you to uh, you know some of that garbage, and then some of them just kind of throw their hands in the air like. Once you've seen the specialists and they don't really know anything, are you just kind of out of luck, or are there other things like studies you can look into and and participate in, or you know that's a hard question. I mean, certainly we don't have the answers for everything, you know, and certainly there are some times where you've pretty much exhausted medical knowledge. But what, you know, what I'll tell patients is that you know I'll never give up. There's always something to keep doing. It may not have the answer. It may not you know solve every issue, but I won't give up as long as you're willing to to continue to work on it. The, the sometimes there is a more specialized specialist, you know what I mean? But once you get to sort of a world-class highly specialized clinic, probably if there's anything worth trying out there, they'll have access to it. And then the the only next step after that is to get you know, in clinical trials, you know, where you're getting experimental treatments, which are experimental. You know, there's no guarantee that they're going to work either. Or you just stay in the system and hope that a, some new treatment gets approved. I mean, you know, every year or two, something new is coming online and, you know, we, we will have success with patients who didn't respond to anything previously. So it doesn't mean there never will be a treatment for it. It just even may not be anything that's working right now. Um, and then like with something like migraine, even for patients for whom there's no like adequate treatment, it doesn't mean that there's nothing to do. There's still always things to do that will at least mitigate it, will at least be better than doing nothing, even if it's not a great outcome. So, but it's tricky. I mean, I, you know, I wish I could say there's always an answer out there if you just keep looking or just do this one thing, but it's just, unfortunately, there are something, we haven't cured everything yet. There are just some problems that don't have a solution. So, Jay, to close this out, do you have a skeptical quote for us this week? I do. I have a quote sent in, from a listener named Tracy Dean, And the quote is, For a star to be born, there is one thing that must happen. A gaseous nebula must collapse. So collapse. Crumble. This is not your destruction. This is your birth. It's very poetic. That was yes. very poetic. Yes. I really like that quote a lot. Who is that? And the, the quote is from, Nobody Knows! <laughs> <laughs> I think I know who that so is. If anybody knows who it is, email us at info at skepticsguy.org. You mean we I, don't know, but it's not necessarily well, – it's not an anonymous quote. Did you just find quote. that on a motivational poster No, somewhere? no. Tracy sent it in. She didn't know who it was. I looked. I couldn't find anything. And oh, uh, it is, you know, this the man with no name. You know, nobody knows. Well, so just Tracy. If somebody finds it, send it in. This it. Is part, it's part of the game, okay? All right. All right. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Sure, thank Steve. you, Steve. Thank you, Doctor. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.